0: With that, let's everyone please stand for our reading of Scripture this morning. So today, you guys, is uh, the beginning of Holy Week, and this is where we celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection and all that his death and resurrection accomplished for us. And, and uh, so what we're going to do today is just have a, a, a time of reflection on the cross and what all that Jesus accomplished as we anticipate Resurrection Sunday next week. So Father, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for coming near to us through Jesus. And thank you that those of us who are without hope and those of us um, who are far from you, myself included, through the cross and through the death of Jesus, we we find new life and we find connection to you, God, and we find uh, a a new rhythm of enjoying you and your presence. And we just pray for this time. Uh, We've heard a lot of sermons in our day. We've been in a lot of church gatherings, some of us. But what we really honestly want and what we seek after this morning is we want a connection with you. We want to hear from you. And we want to be deeply formed and transformed by you. So would the truth of your word do that work today? Would you minister to us in Jesus' name? Amen. So this comes from Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, they made their plans. And they bound Jesus, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. And you've said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of his self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released, uh, to release Barabbas instead. And what shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, hail the king of the Jews. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, have a seat. So this week I read an article uh, about a guy from Missouri who served 29 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. He was convicted of killing a man in 1994 and every moment of every day since he's been behind bars, bad food, orange jumpsuits, probably not great options for community for him in there and all of that while being completely and totally innocent. And so I found myself reading this article with my like really bougie third wave Americano and all of the freedom in the world just outraged for this guy. And the article went on to explain that finally DNA evidence led him to be released earlier this year. So stories like this, they strike a chord in us because on a deep human level, we hate that injustice, right? This is the West. We're the ones who come up with sayings like, innocent until proven guilty. And we care, I hope, a lot about uh, people, all people uh, getting basic human rights and the dignity and the humane treatment of every human being under God. So we want to live in this world where the bad guy gets caught and the good guy gets to live his dream. Except that's not really at all what happens in the story of Jesus. This is a story where a guilty man is set free and an innocent man is put to death. When you think about it, there was nothing really fair about Jesus's crucifixion. He's being treated with extreme prejudice. And if this were happening now, we would all like march down to the courthouse just a few blocks from here and we would fight it. But somehow still the Bible calls this the good news. The Bible calls this the good news, and more than that, this is where the whole biblical plot line finds its crux, Latin for cross. This is where the story finds its climax. It's all been leading to this, the wrongful conviction of a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. And somehow, through his willingness to accept the unfair treatment, the punishment of the cross, that means that through that willingness that Jesus has to go to his cross, the power of God has broken into the world, and in him we are forgiven and saved and made new. One scholar on the book of Mark put it like this, this is the day the earth nearly stood still. From Mark's view, we are at the fulcrum of time and history. Now before you say, yeah, of course, the crucifixion. I'm already a Jesus follower. I'm deeply grateful for Jesus dying on the cross for me. I've sung all the songs. I've watched the movie or whatever. What more could there possibly be to to talk about? Um, at the risk of sounding smug, lots. There's still lots to talk about when it comes to the cross. See, the scandal of the innocent man dying a criminal's death, it's not over. The scandal remains to this day for you and me, because we cannot take the high ground and say, you know, we would fight and condemn the injustice of Jesus' death. It's actually the opposite to that. We trust in his death. We celebrate his death. And we even define our whole lives by it. In other words, this isn't ancient history that we have some opinions about. This is ancient history that continues to carry the power of God to save into our present day, a day that's very dark and in desperate need of saving. So let's dive into the text and and let's reflect on the power of the cross. Uh, Verse one, it's, it's very early in the morning on Good Friday. And the Jewish leaders who had thrown Jesus a mock trial the night before are making their plans to turn him over to Pilate. Now, most of you know, Pilate was a Roman governor over Judea, which was the southern part of Israel. A little tiny bit of history. I promise I'm not going to geek out too hard on this. But if you're familiar with the Gospels, you probably already know that the Roman Empire casts a massive shadow onto first century Israel. Caesar Augustus is the undisputed ruler of the world at the time. The empire, in fact, called him the son of God. Remember that, the son of God. Caesar Augustus, the son of God. Meaning they they thought or they believed that he was divine, or at least that was the propaganda of the empire. In fact, that was the inscription on all of their currency. U.S. currency says, in God we trust. Roman currency said, Augustus, the son of God. So this gives you an idea of like how in charge he was. This is not a figurehead monarchy like modern times, although I hear that the king's coronation is gonna be fabulous. Um, <laughs> Augustus had real authority. Now, after the empire had conquered nations like Israel, Instead of like wiping out their national identity, what they would actually do is just set up a local government and appoint rulers like Pilate to represent the interests of Rome. And they would uphold the law and make sure they were loyal to Caesar and they collected like lots and lots of taxes. And that's kind of how the Roman Empire did it. So as you can imagine, the Jews saw Rome as oppressive and they resented them, but they were powerless to do anything about it because Rome clearly had the greater power. So that is the first layer of the drama in Mark chapter 15 as Jesus is being handed over to Pilate. Next, the people of God were hopeless and disillusioned because the blessings that God had promised them generations past were unfulfilled, mainly, largely, completely forgotten. So the people of Israel were supposed to be the children of Abraham, the people that God had chosen to bless and flourished so that the rest of the world would know who the one true God is. And this was what their identity was all in. He said, God said that they were going to be free. He said that they would have their own sovereign nation and geographical borders. And by the way, 2023, there's still violent uh, fighting over the same strip of land, the Gaza Strip. So maybe you can relate or enter into the thought world of the first century Jewish person. This feeling of being overtaxed. (laughs) or that life isn't what you hoped, and you wonder, where is God, where is he in all of this turmoil that's going on around me? Not to mention, uh, Jesus' trial before Pilate, it happens during the Passover feast. And uh, so the Sanhedrin, the Jewish folks, had broken up all kinds of laws in order to throw Jesus this mock trial the night before. But the Passover feast was the Jewish holiday to end all other holidays. It was when they celebrated God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and the beginning of their journey to the Promised Land. And so it was supposed to represent God's miraculous power to save them. So Passover time each and every year was like freedom time. They prided themselves in being God's chosen people and they were looking forward to God's ultimate salvation. Except they couldn't really say that during the time of Jesus, during the first century, without the sting of painful irony. Because here they were, well over a thousand years after the Exodus, and they're still answering to someone. They're answering to Pilate. Not Egypt, but Rome. And eventually, hope deferred. It just turns into despair and and cynicism. Maybe God will not come through on his promise after all. Now, those of you who are familiar, well-versed in the scriptures, you will probably know or point out at this point that the Old Testament prophets made it actually really clear. Israel didn't enjoy God's blessing because of their idolatry. It was their love for other things besides God. And we can fall into that same, uh, same temptation too. In fact, this is why we've called this year, 2023, the year of undivided devotion, wholehearted worship to God because idolatry can creep into our lives as well. Our desires for things like success or power or wealth or popularity, they get in the way of our love for Jesus. So it's not so much that God withholds himself during times of idolatry, but that he himself is our blessing. And when we love other things, if I lost you come back to me, When, when we love other things out of proportion, to our love for Jesus, then we just end up missing out. But when we have rightly ordered love, first Jesus and then everything else, then we experience life to the full, as Jesus puts it. Peace, joy, hope, and all the rest. So because God is good, even though Israel is worshiping idols, he doesn't abandon them. Actually what he does is he promises again, he promises to bless them again through the prophets. He says, the way I'm going to bless you is by sending the anointed one or the Messiah or the King to restore all things. And the Messiah would come from the family of Abraham and pull everything that's not right with the world into alignment with God's vision that God had promised generations before. So this is why the plot is sort of thickening now as Jesus is appearing before Pilate, because Peter... And some of the first disciples, they were putting it together. Jesus isn't just a rabbi, he's the Messiah. He even claims himself to be the Messiah during his mock trial the night before. See, we live in this time of like hype and talk, but Jesus didn't have to just talk about his authority. In fact, he rarely did. He proved his authority with his life, right? He's way more than just like a witty pastor or something like that. He's been healing the sick, he's casting out demons, he's teaching with authority, he's performing miracles. And the critics, they want to sort of discredit him, but his manifest power cannot be denied. And so as much as they want to discredit him, they can't really do it. And all along the way, Jesus is saying, by the way, the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. His rule, God's rule is breaking in on the earth. And as a feature, an element of Jesus's power and ministry, everywhere he goes, opposition is just popping up next to him, right and left, demonic powers, hatred, rejection by the religious leaders, things like this. But every time, every single time there is a rival to Jesus's power, they just fall flat because Jesus ultimately wins the day. So for the early adopters, the first disciples, the ones who could see it or chose to see it, Hope in God's promise was awakening in them again. There's a sense of cautious optimism. And what's more, if you were privy to like the teachings of the Old Testament, when you hear the announcement from Jesus's mouth that the kingdom of God is at hand, you would also be hearing this other reality that all other rival kingdoms, Rome included, are being defeated and God's reign of peace is here at long last. So this is what the anticipation, this lead up To the meeting of Pilate and Jesus was all about. Jesus is clashing with Pilate, the king of the Jews, with the representative from the king of Rome. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus will have victory over Augustus too. Or Or at least this is what the first disciples would have hoped to see. But look at verse 12. It's not at all what the first disciples would have wanted to see. What shall I do? Then with the one you call the king of the Jews, crucify them, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. So wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Not exactly the story that the first disciples would have hoped would come out of that clash with Pilate. Really the only way that you could read this or see this in the first century was that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be the king. He couldn't have possibly been God's anointed. He wasn't even wanted by his own people. His own people rejected and wanted him dead. And Pilate here, if you read the irony in between the lines, he's practically taunting him he calls him the king of the Jews four times. He even asks them, do you want me to release him to you? In other words, your so-called king is zero threat to me. From another angle, though, some scholars have seen that Pilate is actually showing pity to Jesus. And then you know the rest of the story. The Roman soldiers overpower him without contest. He's bound, spat on, beaten, whipped, given a fake crown, given a fake robe. It's all mockery. And the the cross is the symbol of Rome's power. It was their way of showing dominance over their enemies. So how could Jesus' death possibly be seen as anything other than complete failure and defeat? Like I said at the beginning, there's intense, deep irony and paradox in the cross. Look at the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate from John's Gospel. So same story, different vantage point. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate says, am I Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what looks like defeat and failure on the one hand is actually just Jesus's quiet confidence in his agenda, that he feels deep within himself that is far greater than the political conflict of his day and the powers that be. He's saying, I am a king, I do have a kingdom, and I'm actually using Rome's ego and the power that you think you have over me to accomplish my kingdom's ultimate purpose. He's saying, do with me what you like, I'm inaugurating my kingdom. Do with me what you like. I am bringing the kingdom of God here. I'm baptizing my people with eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing, no one, not even Caesar Augustus, the so-called son of God, can stop it. It's such a powerful reality. I hope you're hearing it. I hope you're seeing it. It's incredible. And then in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives us the final piece of the puzzle. In his uh, dialogue or conversation uh, with the chief priest, he says, this is Your hour when darkness reigns. In other words, Jesus sees this whole storm cloud brewing, the corruption, the hypocrisy, the extreme prejudice and mock trial and hating what is good and true. He's saying that this is where all of the darkness of the world is being lured into one place. And all of its power is being concentrated on stopping Jesus from accomplishing God's redemption. All of the evil and darkness in the world is being lured to one place, concentrating itself on stopping Jesus. And by the way, most of the people in the first century would see the cross in exactly those terms. Jesus' agenda actually died with him. The hour of darkness prevailed, or at least that would have been how many people saw it. But you know this. In church history, we don't call Jesus' crucifixion Bad Friday, Failure Friday. We call it Good Friday. Good Friday. And the Bible is actually depicting the cross not as Jesus' shameful death, but it's actually the opposite, his, 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 his victorious enthronement. The book of Mark wants us to see the march up the hill of Calgary as Jesus' coronation. The cross is actually how Jesus becomes king. Look at the response of the man who's in charge of his execution. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Think about the paradox here. This is the guy who fought for Augustus who's saying this. The guy who just brutally killed Jesus to prove the point that Caesar had power and was king and not Jesus. And he did it without any trouble at all. In his world where military might was the only real proof that meant anything about a king's authority. And yet when this man saw Jesus die, he knew this man was truly the son of God. So think about that. Rome's enforcer is deconverting from his corrupt, violent religion of power and turning to Jesus because of the honor and the glory in how he died. And he recognized this is where the real power is. Friends, there is a lifetime worth of wonder hidden in the power of the cross. And this is what we're reflecting on during Holy Week. Just one facet of the cross is what we have time for with the time that we have left to sort of consider what Jesus is accomplishing when he dies on the cross for us. First of all, we we find that he defeated the kingdom of darkness for us. He defeated the kingdom of darkness for us. Since the Reformation, we've only kind of been moralizing a sin problem that Jesus took care of on the cross, and that's real. But a major motif in the New Testament is this idea of Christus victor. That in Jesus' death, he actually is victorious over the kingdom of darkness, for he has rescued us, Colossians says, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So here's what this means for you. You were held captive. You were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. uh, Romans, Ephesians talks about this at length, but not anymore. John chapter 16 verse 33 says, I have said these things, Jesus is right before he goes to the cross by the way, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace and in this world you will have trouble or tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world and later in 1 John 5, whoever is born of God has also overcome the world so Jesus' victory isn't just something that we observe, but it's actually something that you enjoy, and it's something that you experience when you trust in Jesus. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and being oppressed and enslaved to sin, and you're actually given a brand new life. And there's many of you, some of you here in the room today who have I've had the opportunity and the chance to disciple and to Uh, to, to share with you what it looks like to truly walk with Jesus and we've worked through some of your patterns of sin and the things that have held you captive and now you're walking free and all of that is possible because of the power of God that was released and inaugurated on the cross and we are now been rescued by God from that kingdom of darkness and uh and we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. That's a beautiful thing. Is anyone excited about that? Yeah. Me, too. me too, me too. He also dealt with the sin problem for us. Check out 2 Corinthians 5:21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a whole teaching in that, but this is another thing that God has accomplished for us on the cross. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, beginning of his ministry about three years before, He went to his cross. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So no matter who you are, regardless of how moral we are relative to others in our sphere or whatever, we all have sin that needs to be atoned for and needs to be forgiven. And Jesus on the cross, he absorbed the the consequences of my sin so that I could be forgiven. And then when I trust in Jesus or when you trust in Jesus, not as kind of like a fancy, uh, you know, religious teacher or something, but when you trust in Jesus as king and you look at the cross as his enthronement, as his coronation series, when he is inaugurating the kingdom of God and when we see God in that way, his cross is the way that we get that forgiveness. I am forgiven and I am made clean before God. Though my sins were as scarlet, he has made me white as snow. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Anyone excited about that? Me too. Number three, he gave us new life. Check out Romans 6:23. "For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord." Another place in 2 Corinthians, it says that for anyone who is in Christ, the new creation is at hand, it's happened, it's arrived, it's here. Meaning that your new life begins when you trust in him, you have eternal life now and Literally, my favorite thing on planet Earth right now is to hang out with those of you who are brand new to faith. Like, just in the last couple of months, I've turned to Jesus and have been welcomed into his family, have been given this new life because it's so fresh in your perspective and you're just jacked about it. And I've spent a lot of my life with people who've been Christians for 40 years and you can hardly get them to get excited about the love of Jesus anymore. And then you get these new Christians like, oh, I was forgiven. I have a new life now. And you can see it in their countenance, in their eyes, in their excitement that all has been made new. Brand new beginning, brand new start. And this is what you describe, particularly those of you who are new to Jesus, because it's so fresh in your memory when things were different. And It's a beautiful thing to see. Another thing that God has done for us is he has made us a part of his family. Check out John chapter one, verse 12. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So we don't just need forgiveness of sin. Okay, thank you God for forgiveness of sin. I will take it from here. I got my ticket to heaven punched and I'm good for for, for, for now. We need much more than forgiveness, we actually need to belong in a community of love. Jesus calls that the family of God and the cross represents the reclaiming of that family, again back from the grips of evil and death and it also represents the beginning of our adoption into the family of God or I should say the potential or the possibility of your adoption into the family of God and to all who did receive him, who. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus reclaimed that for you on the cross. Before you were far off, you were a wanderer. You you were uh, fatherless. And now you have been brought into the family where you have the father. He's reclaimed that for you on the cross. This is one of the beautiful things that God has accomplished for us. Much, 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 much more that he has accomplished for us on the cross, and that is really just one little facet of what God accomplished on the cross. For the sake of time, I also wanna talk very briefly on how the cross also changes us. So the cross accomplishes for us all of these wonderful realities that I just explained to you, but it also changes us. It transforms us into people of gratitude. I wanna start here. If you're hearing this message right and you are a Jesus follower or you're like on the precipice of of a Jesus follower, what should be filling your heart right now is an overwhelming sense of gratitude. See, the love of Jesus is astonishing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't pencil out the way that Jesus loves you. Ephesians tells us that in the ages to come that he's still going to be uncovering and revealing the riches of his grace and his love and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It says that God is love, in him is no darkness at all, meaning that the love of God is just like nature or, or, or the universe or something like that. Just when you think you've exhausted it or understood it, like you've seen all that there is to see, you discover that there's actually something else. There's something more that's more breathtaking than everything before it. And when you experience this kind of love from God, it deeply changes you. You see, this is one of the reasons why we need to take the scandal of the cross and like let it be in the present day with us. Because when we do, we're actually saying, no, Jesus, please don't step aside from the cross. Please do let the nails pierce you. Please do accept the unfair, unjust, like wrongful conviction And please hang there for me. Please die there for me. And the Bible tells us that it was because of his love that he endured that for us. And then he calls us to be people who live in accordance with that love. Um, Paul says that the love of Christ, it actually compels us. So the, way, the reason why this makes us a people of gratitude is because we see our lives through that lens, that we would not be who we are, we would not be children of God, we would not be righteous, we would not have hope if it were not for the sacrifice of Jesus. So that becomes the lens that we look through and see all of life from. See, the problem with just adding Jesus to our already westernized, Americanized vision for life is that we might acknowledge the cross, but we don't live through the lens of the cross. And we need to do that. We need to make Jesus our true king. And we need to make the cross the orienting vision of our entire life. And as we do, we see this great Hope and this great uh, sense of gratitude just overtake us. So if you've been forgiven and you are still lacking true joy and you complain all the time and you are always thinking and complaining and grumbling, then you need to consider that you, 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 you may not be allowing the love of Jesus to inform and shape your attitudes. And that is... Uh, not the disposition or the attitude of someone who's been changed and made new and given a new life by Jesus. Grumbling and complaining is a surefire, uh, dead giveaway, warning light on the dashboard that you don't have Jesus's cross. And what he's done for you as the orienting vision of your life. I say this to a group of mostly millennials who I am a part of this generation. We tend to grumble and complain about all kinds of things. And listen, I get it. Your life is not exactly what you want it to be. And there's lots of things you wish were different. You have anxiety, you have depression, you have things that have been taken from you. You've gone through suffering and hardship. All of that is true. And I don't want to take away from that at all. I can speak from personal experience that when the cross is the orienting vision of your life, you become a person of gratitude and I believe that you can't honestly serve God in his kingdom. You can't actually relate to him with any sort of consistency or vitality or excitement if you are not a person of gratitude, which is why um, I start my day and I recommend each of you start your day with a gratitude practice. Before you look at your phone, check out your work email or get on to working out or whatever the first thing you do is at the beginning of every day, before all of that, before your cup of coffee even, uh, have a moment of gratitude. And by that I just mean locate in your heart something that you know God has done for you or something about his character. And it might be something as simple as taking a glance at the cross and remembering What God has rescued you from and all that God has accomplished through the cross. And let that be the first thing that you express to God in the mornings. It might be two, three minutes of silence, locating gratitude, and then saying, Jesus, I thank you for blank. That is the way you start your day. That is the way to start your day is by being grateful to what God has done. And over time, not right away, but over time, after months, and maybe at most a year, if you practice that practice, gratitude practice, then all of a sudden, it becomes very real and natural to you. And this is actually the way that you begin to see yourself in the world, is that you know what? Nothing of true, real, eternal value can ever be taken from me because the Bible says that I am loved by him and I have eternal life in him, we need to become people of gratitude. I feel this very urgently within me as your pastor. We also become people who follow the way of the cross. We're almost there. We follow the way of the cross. Don't let the Christian art on Etsy fool you, okay? We are not trusting in a domestic, gentle vision for life. Make no mistake, your eternal life was one through agony and blood and wrath. And Jesus endured the valley of death to win you back. So just because it feels nice to receive, still, it cost Jesus a great deal. And these are one of the reflections that we meditate on during the Holy Week. When we accept Jesus' invitation to follow him, we are also accepting the joy and the glory that comes with that. And we are also accepting the suffering that comes with that. Check out uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this is where we like to stop. But notice that's not a period and the change of tune. This is the next phrase connected to the exact same thought. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Meaning that when you follow Jesus, you identify as a person of the cross. And the first generation of Jesus followers knew exactly what it meant for them to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. On the one hand, it meant treason against the Roman Empire. And on the other side, it meant claiming a false Messiah to the Jews. Both of which would have gotten them exactly where it got Jesus. And all too often it did. 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred. So by comparison, the Pacific Northwest is not that bad. For one, Roman soldiers are way more threatening than hipsters are. Just like it's just a fact. I mean, cyberbullying is not a joke. In fact, it's really not a joke. But it's not the same thing as being burned at the stake. Okay. And that said, in some ways, we are living in a very hostile host culture to the way of Jesus. I've heard many stories, even just this week. A growing number of people in the West are are, are hostile. Towards Christianity, They think you and I are part of the problem, meaning following Jesus where you go to work or where, you're at, where you go to school. It could involve a fair amount of rejection and misunderstanding, maybe even being falsely accused as a bigot or religious fanatic or whatever. So sometimes we wanna just follow Jesus as long as there's enough upside or as long as it's popular amongst a friend group or something like that. But remember, Jesus was alone on Good Friday. He was in anguish, being ridiculed and punished even though he was innocent. No one understood what he was doing or why he was doing it and yet, it was the day that changed everything. and The fulcrum of all of human history and all of our lives find their meaning and center from his death. What if Jesus was concerned with the easy road or traded his vocation with what was popular or did what Peter felt he should do. Peter pitched him an idea that was contrary to the will of God, or the zealots who thought he should form some sort of rebel militia, or what if he caved or tried to reason or barter with Pilate? Fortunately for all of us, he doesn't do that. He wasn't crippled by the opinions of others. He wasn't listening to all of the voices shouting around him. He was only interested in obeying the Father's voice, and he was concerning himself with God's will. Remember, he prayed in the garden, not my will but yours be done. So our calling as Jesus followers is to receive the abundant blessing, the love that comes from Jesus. And it often also includes, particularly in a hostile host culture, it means being misunderstood, unpopular, going upstream to culture, especially if you're a leader. If you're a leader in the 2020s, man, being a leader in the 2020s in the Pacific Northwest, if you're leading people towards Jesus, it means pioneering a a mostly untraveled trail. And it will involve being misunderstood. It will definitely involve suffering. Unfortunately, Christianity in the West has all too often been colonized by our cultural, our our, our culture, instead of informing it. Let me say that again. Unfortunately, Christianity in the West has all too often been colonized by our culture instead of informing our culture. We fear man, we adopt consumerism, we worship the God of self. We nod our head to Jesus, but we still idolize the American vision for success. See, we need to be clear in our minds about who God has called us to become and what it means to follow after him. And we need to be resolved deep within ourselves to follow him, even if it means taking the unpopular road less traveled or being misunderstood. And I want to leave you with this question. It was Jesus and his unpopular misunderstood resolve that resulted in our redemption. So what do you think might be possible or what could God do when you're willing to follow him in the way of the cross? I think all kinds of amazing things. In fact, the, the church, church, uh, history has been, um, filled with the stories of martyrs who have brought incredible kingdom power and brought many to Jesus because of their sacrificial death. And so, not all of us are called to be martyrs in that same way, but we are um, called to follow after Jesus, even when it is unpopular. Um, last, uh, a couple more here. Um, we're also kingdom people. We are kingdom people. Like Jesus said to Pilate, he goes, listen, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm not interested in your fight. Like my fight is not with Rome. And in the same way as kingdom people, our fight is not with the political clashes or ideology of our day. We need to stay laser focused on what Jesus said matters. And what Jesus said matters is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is why we do culturally disruptive things like spending 40 days around the clock praying for spiritual awakening and revival. Because it re centers us on the core vision. We're not being pulled, distracted, losing focus on things that are matters of our day, but they don't pertain to the kingdom. We are kingdom people, so we want to follow after Jesus and his kingdom. We're also people who look on, uh, we're on the lookout for redemption. We're on the lookout for redemption. Um, a couple of nights ago, I took some time in the prayer room and when I got here, there was a few of you already in the prayer room and you stayed with me for the whole time, which was sweet. It was awesome, thank you for doing that. Um, and we were praying and one of the women in the prayer room was telling me about something that had happened in her life just a couple of years prior. And uh, her mom had gotten very sick and had a few things going on with her and, um, and there it completely upended her life. And she told me this kind of story of of how at first it was so demoralizing and disillusioning and she was so afraid and lacking real hope. But then she said, but now looking back on just a few months ago, I'm able to see that God is using all of these things to bring grace and mercy and help to others. And now God has actually shaped my life in a way I'm different now because of it. And I'm actually seeing God redeem so what it feels like unfulfilled promise or hope lost or hope deferred or something like that, God is actually bringing real, uh, real redemption. And we are the kinds of people who are on the lookout for that kind of redemption all around us. We have those redemptive eyes. And finally, this is where we end. Um, the way that the cross changes us is that we are people of wholehearted devotion, wholehearted devotion. Um, Like I said, uh, the the prayer room was this experiment that's meant to disrupt our culture, to get us hungering and desiring for God in ways that particularly in an affluent community like ours we don't often experience. And there's been something disruptive about it in the best way. I think it's it's, um, awakened many of us. And what I've seen in you is something that is kind of unprecedented and I'm really excited. For example, um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've, I just keep getting text messages and phone calls and emails from all of you going like, gosh, there was eight of us and we were all in the prayer room and then we just wanted to worship. And so is it okay if we just all gather there tomorrow night and we'll just worship together and hours and on and we'll just praise the Lord. I'm like, yeah, what kind of pastor would I be if I said no to that? Of course, the, the place is yours. This is a chapel. This is God's place. This is where we worship him. Absolutely. That's been popping up and happening all over the place. I hope for much, much more of that in the time to come. I have others of you begging me never to close the prayer room. Don't ever close the prayer room. I don't want to put close the prayer room, by the way. But, but what, what's happening is there is this new affection And there's this new sense of desire and love and passion for Jesus that I see in you. It's not that some of you didn't have it before, it just feels like there is a turning up of the temperature of our community, which is beautiful. The next thing that I expect God to do with that is I I expect God to begin tearing down the idols of our hearts. I see him wanting to purify our worship. I see him wanting to notice Sometimes the duality of our worship. We try and buy into the lie that we can worship more than one thing. Or maybe in our subconscious, we're wholly devoted to Jesus, but really there's whole things over here in our life that we're holding back from him. And we toggle back and forth between following after Jesus and worshiping him wholeheartedly and then having these things on the side that actually keep us from true devotion. And I believe that out of this moment of turning to Jesus and hunger for him and love for the cross and all of this stuff is that he's going to begin to do the painful but glorious work of breaking down the idols of our heart. And I think we should welcome that. I think we should should, um, lean into that. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we all want to be able to get to the end of this life and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't hold anything back from me. You leveraged all that you could. You gave all of your life for me and my kingdom. I think that's what we want to hear at the end of this life. So let's stand and let's pray together. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We recognize that there is just no possible way that we could be forgiven or we could have this victory over the kingdom of darkness, be set free to live into our new calling and really even seek the kingdom at all if it were not for the fulcrum, the crux, the, the crux of the story, which is you hanging on the cross. And so we just wanna be the people who respond to that, respond to that generous love that you've poured out. And before we move on, I, I just want you to take a moment, church, to visualize the Lord hanging on the cross. And notice that this is actually what you need him to do. And that you're one of those those desperate people, I'm one of those desperate people who depend on the sacrifice of Jesus for life and for forgiveness. And now let's just respond as people of gratitude like I said a moment ago, if there's any group of people on the earth who should be grateful, it should be the ones who hold in their hearts a vision for the true gospel of Jesus, the good news. And so Jesus, I just, in your name, say thank you. Thank you for the cross. Also, I just want to give you the opportunity now to recognize and to pay attention to any area of your life that still requires God's forgiveness. And we don't do this because um, God is interested in shaming or guilting you. We're doing this because God is interested in forgiving you. And in fact, the, the, the story of the cross is this Incredible picture of how he's done exactly that. The only way that that sin still has power in your life is if you hold it to yourself and don't confess. And so take this moment now and hold that sin out before the Lord. ask him, will the cross cover this too? Will the cross take care of this behavior, this sin, this thing I'm ashamed of? Will the cross take care of that? And just pay attention to how the Lord cleanses you and makes you clean and forgives you completely His invitation is to follow him in that way of the cross. Anyone who wants to follow after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So what is the area of life that God is inviting you to take up your cross? Maybe it's the misunderstood, unpopular thing that you know deep down God is asking you to do. Just resolve within yourself to not take the easy road, but to instead do what you saw your king model for you, doing the hard things well, suffering for the sake of love, prioritizing the kingdom over all things. Thank you, Jesus. So the team is gonna lead us, but before we get there, I wanna remind you that as soon as this next song starts, we're gonna come forward to receive the bread and the cup. This is the thing that we do every week. Today, it has special meaning because this is Holy Week. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. But I also just wanna pray a prayer of blessing and filling of the Holy Spirit over you. So God, I thank you for my sisters and brothers. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would be with them as we respond to you. As we worship you, you alone get the glory and the honor and the praise. And here we will be found not as people who complain or find things to grumble about, but as people of true gratitude for all that you've given we pour out our hearts in praise to you, God. And as we pour out our hearts in praise, I pray that you would bless, make whole, that you would heal areas of our lives that need that healing. I pray you would fill my friends with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, let's sing. The tables are open.